Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Friday, October 21st, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Shout out to one of our sponsors, Purple Carrot. Purple Carrot is changing the way we think about dinner with their exclusive plant-based meal kit. Good for your health, good for the planet. Discover the power of plants with Purple Carrot. Visit purplecarrot.com and be sure to use code MINDS and get $30 off your first order. This episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly to you. To get $50 toward any one of their obsessively engineered mattresses, visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. So how do you feel about cats? What? We're talking about cats? Yeah. uh, Yeah. Are you like a cat person or a dog person? All right, I'm going to reveal a pretty closely held secret about me here on air. Luckily, luckily, this doesn't go out anywhere, right? <laughs> so I aspire to be a dog person, but in reality, I'm a cat person. My wife has won the battle. She's definitely a cat person, and we've only had cats. So when I was growing up, I used to love cats, but I was very allergic to them. So I never actually thought that I could, you know, own one or have be owned by one. Uh, be owned by one. <laughs> but I always loved cats, especially the big cats at the zoo and, and so forth. They're so awesome. And so it wasn't totally mysterious to me why, you know, cats and internet LOLs, right? But a little bit weird that they became such a phenomenon. And so when I got pitched a book by science writer Abigail Tucker, she was a longtime correspondent she for the Smithsonian. She pitched you on cats on the internet? Yeah, she wrote a book about cats, the lion in the living room, and including oh. an explanation of why cats on the internet. Really? <laughs> really. We're talking about cats on the internet this week? We're going to start the interview talking about cats on the internet. It's amazing. <laughs> but that idea of lion in the living room, that implies something else here that we have kind of a wild beast roaming our our hallways. Yeah, and it kind of goes with, you know, the stereotypical cat, which is that, you know, you are owned by a cat as opposed to you own the cat, right? You know, we all we all feel like we are dog owners, but, you know, cats seem to have a majestic way of ruling our house and making us do what they want us to do and, you know, people even go so far as to say the parasite in their, f- you know, feces causes 
you know, a, a brain condition that makes us their zombies. <laughs> oh, toxic. No, but I mean, they're domesticated animals. That means we domesticated them. Like for all the jokes about how cats like, you know, control us. I mean, that can't be the way it actually is. Yeah, is but it? I mean, okay, sure. Yes, we domesticated the cats. Or one might argue that the cats decided to befriend us because we provided them with certain benefits, right? Um, an easy source to food being one. But Tucker writes that cats, especially stray cats, are actually a really big problem. That there are 600 million of them and that in some parts of the world, they have actually taken over and made other species extinct. What? And we're not yeah. talking about just like rodents, like they hunt these things. They're, nope. They're crowding other species out. Yep. Oh, my God. <laughs> so... That's our interview for today. Yeah, um, we're talking about cats. <laughs> uh, so let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Abigail Tucker. Inquiring Minds is brought to you by Blurb. Blurb is a bookmaking platform that allows you to create, publish, share, and sell your own professional quality books from your computer, tablet, or phone. Now, I have to admit that I was an early adopter of Blurb. Uh, almost as soon as the website came out, I used it to create my wedding photo album more than, or I guess almost 10 years ago now. And I have to say that the money that I saved from not having a professional photographer do it was so amazing. And the book itself came out really, really well. It looks just as good as a professional's, in my humble opinion. And I could add all kinds of personal touches that would have been a nightmare in any other platform or uh, with uh, it wouldn't have happened with a professional. So you can choose from a variety of formats like photo books, trade books, magazines and ebooks. Um, you can create family books or travel books or cookbooks. You can use one of their free layout and design tools or Adobe tools with Blurb built in. You can print one copy or many, and you can come back and print more as you need them. They have experts available to assist you every step of the way. So visit blurb.com minds and enter code minds for 25% off your very own Blurb photo book. That's blurb.com minds and code minds at checkout for 25% off. Blurb, make a book and leave your mark. And this episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. They've produced an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. This is a one-of-a-kind hybrid mattress that uses two technologies, a hybrid of latex foam and memory foam, which results in just the right sink, just the right bounce. Plus, there's a risk-free trial and return policy. You can try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. They send it in a box right to your door. And to give you an idea of just how much less these are selling for, a twin-size mattress is $500, and a king-size mattress is just $950. And I can actually say the bed that I sleep on is a Casper mattress. And it's great. I love it. To get $50 toward any one of their obsessively engineered, amazingly comfortable, and made-in-America mattresses, visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. Once again, that's casper.com slash inquiringminds, promo code inquiringminds. Shout out to one of our sponsors, Purple Carrot. Purple Carrot is changing the way we think about dinner with their exclusive plant-based meal kit. Delivering delicious recipes and pre-proportioned ingredients to your door each week, you'll discover new flavors and learn new techniques as you explore the world of plant-based cooking. Eating healthy doesn't have to be boring. There are over 20,000 edible plants in the world, and most of us will only get to experience a small fraction of these. That's where Purple Carrot comes in 
creating new dishes every week inspired by seasonal flavors that will tempt and delight. Discover the power of plants with Purple Carrot. Find out what they're serving up this week by visiting purplecarrot.com and be sure to use code MINDS to get $30 off your first order. That's purplecarrot.com and code MINDS to get $30 off your first order. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Abigail Tucker. Thank you so much for having me. I love the fact that we are doing a show on cats that will be available on the internet. Seems extremely appropriate. Very much. So, <laughs> uh, let's start there. Why is why are cats an internet phenomenon? You know, I think that's really kind of a legitimate mystery. And um, I have some theories about uh, why they might be such a big deal online. Um, and all of them have to do with the way that they work, uh, cats work in the real world and sort of the, um, the, uh, origins of, of feline biology. And basically what cats are either in your lap or online in the disembodied realm are meat eating machines. Every fiber of their body is designed to hunt, um, and to, uh, harvest huge amounts of, uh, fat and protein from the landscape. And, um, they hunt in a very particular way, which is an ambush, uh, stalk and ambush style of hunting. And I think that that, um, particular style of attack is something that works really well online. Cats are very sudden creatures and they kind of explode out of places and are very interesting to film um, in short formats. So that's sort of why cat videos are um, are such a hit. Um, a lot of them involve very explosive action that stems from the way that cats hunt. And there's a few other things about them that I think are really interesting and um, related to their meat-eating ways. Um, another is that they... Um, Cats, because they do require such large amounts of meat in nature, tend to be what's called apex predators. They're sort of the sitting solo at the top of ecosystems, and they're usually solitary animals. And I think that solitary nature also translates really well into the internet because cats um, don't need to interact with um, other cats or human subjects. They just do really well in a vacuum, just kind of like sitting in a random generic living room. They are complete in that way and in a way that dogs, which are very social animals, are not. So let's just, there, there are two things in, in particular about cats on the internet that have been bothering me and I, I just, I can't wait to ask you this. One, uh, why are they afraid of cucumbers? <laughs> you know, that's a really interesting question. I feel like cats just have this very um, startled way of moving that, again, just kind of stems from the way that they uh, are active in landscapes. And so I think that they kind of um, appear to be afraid a lot of times, even though cats are sort of very inscrutable animals. And, um, you know, they, they are sort of... Uh, it's impossible to really know what they are thinking. But yeah, they do appear to be pretty afraid of cucumbers. <laughs> I always thought it was because maybe it looks like a snake or, you know, you know that's some not kind a bad predator. theory. That's actually a good idea. <laughs> so the other question is, why do they like uh, getting into small spaces like coffee cups and vases? You know, um, I am... Uh, I think that, again, that has to do with the fact that cats are um, sort of by nature, very cryptic, hidden animals, and they like to lie and wait and hide. And you know, if it's a, a small, it's a, if it's a, a small space or a tight fit, that's that's okay with them because they can 
um, they can get out of that space with with ease as well. And I think sort of the quintessential cat video are those Maru videos of the cat, like hopping into a box and then exploding back out. And it's this sort of hiding and striking combination that is something that can be captured really well in short online formats um, that makes them kind of stand out predators online. So your book was the first to sort of change the way I think about the domestic cat. I am, of course, one of these people who think of the predatory big cats like lions and tigers as being particularly dangerous. Certainly would not let you know my <laughs> toddler good. get anywhere near one. <laughs> um, but it, you know, from your book, you suggest that, in fact, in, just in terms of sheer amount of carnage, sheer effect on our world, the domestic cat is by far worse. Oh, yeah. Domestic cats, it's almost uh, impossible to think of how many cats there are uh, padding around on the planet today. People think that there's 600 million or more, maybe a billion house cats. There are so many house cats in the world that in America alone, more house cats are born on average every day than there are wild lions in the entire world. So it's a staggering number of house, of, of, of animals. And the thing is that even though they have a very uh, different relationship with man, they still are at their heart cats and they uh, do what cats do, which is eat meat. And they um, extract a, uh, a huge amount of meat from the environment in a whole different variety of ways. And some of that and what gets the most coverage, I think, is their, their hunting of um, endangered species and then other other wild animals generally. But even if your cat doesn't go outside, it's still getting meat from somewhere, whether that's from a chicken farm or from uh, sardines caught in some far off ocean. Uh, they all are eating meat. Yeah. So in your book, you have this one fact that uh, America's house cats consume the equivalent of three million chickens every day. Yeah. I mean, that's 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 a big environmental impact, I would think, in terms of getting these chickens and, you know, producing them and getting them to the cats. And, you know, is there is the production of cat food something that we should be thinking about when it comes to our impact on the environment? Well, I mean, certainly we impact the environment in all sorts of different horrifying ways. Um, I did read a paper about the amount of seafood, uh, wild caught seafood that cats eat and the fact that the average Australian cat eats more fish than the average Australian does. And so... Uh, fishing and overfishing is a, and bycatch is sort of a major concern. And so with cats, just the sheer numbers of cats on the planet mean that, you know, wherever they're making their living, it, it does make a difference. Um, to to the way the planet the planet works but then of course you know the the impacts that are even more shocking are when cats can um you know strike at a uh, a far less common kind of animal like a a spe uh, different types of birds or uh, small rodents especially and um single-handedly shrink their populations and in some cases really contribute to extinctions 
Yeah. So that's one of the things I feel like people talk about in San Francisco, where I live a lot about how there's lots of stray cats in Golden Gate Park or big city park, and that they are, in some ways, uh, endangering the small bird population. But, you know, do pe- can people actually measure that? And is there is, is there any data to suggest that this is really an issue? Or is it just people kind of speculating? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, there have been really good studies on small islands about what cats can do to a, a population of birds or small mammals, and it's clear that they can take a toll. Um, however, small islands are different as ecosystems than uh, mainland areas. Um, so in places like Hawaii and America, it's very clear that cats uh, pose an environmental problem. On the mainland, that's more controversial. There's a lot of uh, bird scientists who say that, yes, they are... Um, single-handedly threatening uh, bird populations um, on the mainland as well. And one uh, argument that's compelling there is that um, the urban ecosystems and mainland ecosystems in general are coming to resemble islands more. They uh, Urban ecosystems are uh, these little... Um, uh, blips uh, in bigger systems of wilderness, or there's little parks like the park you're talking about that are little islands in large urban areas. And those places may have characteristics of island ecology where cats could take a, um, a real chunk out of a, a population of uh, stranded animals. Um, and then the other thing that I think is really interesting is the case of Australia, because Australia is um, a mainland ecosystem. I mean, it's 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 a it's an island, but it's also a continent. It's a place where um, huge amounts of. Uh, Uh, cats live and kill, you know, millions upon millions of animals. And so that's an area that's big enough that that it's sort of compelling to me that cats could make a difference in a place like that. We're not talking about just a little tiny scrap of land in an ocean. We're talking about a continent where the government has said that cats are a big enough problem that they're actually developing new systems to um, eliminate cats from the Australian ecosystem. So I think, yeah, the fact that there are um, that that mainland areas can have characteristics of island ecosystems and that some of these islands we're talking about are practically as big as mainlands um, mean that there's something at least uh, interesting and compelling about the arguments that these bird scientists are making. And so they have been classified as invasive species. Oh, yes. <laughs> they're, they're, they're the quintessential invasive species, which is something that was... Um, really kind of uh, amazing to me um, because I always thought of cats as something that just belonged right by my side. But um, of course, they they have no business being um, in America or being really anywhere outside of North Africa and the Near East, which is where Felis Sylvestris Libica, the uh, wild ancestor of all our domestic cats, comes from. And uh, they just kind of moved through the earth um, in the shadow of humanity, although there are places where cats live where people uh, can't or won't or don't live too, which is kind of interesting. It's like they can even go, they can even invade beyond where people can invade. So we had a stray cat for a while and we never had any mice in our house while the stray cat was, you know, making his presence known. And then when he died, we had a really bad (laughs) 
mouse rodent problem. But in your book, you suggest that actually cats aren't great deterrents for rodents. That was a surprise to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I too have had the experience as a, 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 an urban dweller where I found uh, little dead beheaded mice on my carpet and, and things like that. Cats definitely kill mice. And, you know, it could be that in a, in a tight living quarters, like apartment dwelling or row house dwelling, that you having a cat and your neighbor not having a cat, that makes a difference in the way that the uh, rodents kind of uh, design their territories and lifestyles. But generally speaking, um, rodents are... F- the only animals, pretty much these these um, uh, human affiliated rodents like um, uh, Norway rats and and certain kinds of house mice, um, they are basically almost as spectacularly um, powerful and good at surviving as house cats are, and they're just so good at breeding and so good at surviving that a cat really can't make a huge impact on a rodent population. With mice, you know, mice are certainly an animal that's small enough for um, cats to to eat, um, but I think the question is more like, will your cat actually um, exterminate mice in a way that's... Uh, really to please you and to to better your life rather than just randomly picking off a mouse here and there because it's hungry. The cats don't really behave like rat terriers that are going to systematically rid a place of um, rodents. And I think the more, even more interesting example is... um, urban rats. Um, There have been really good studies done in uh, places like Baltimore, where um, the scientists study how cats, alley cats, and um, these very uh, robust Norway rats uh, cohabitate in alleyways and how they get along. And the scientists found that, indeed, you do find more cats in alleys where there are more rats, which would suggest to innocent cat owners like, like us that perhaps the cats are preying on the rats that carry all these terrible diseases. But really, it's because the cats and rats are both eating the same research, which they share in a pretty uh, friendly way. And the resource that they share is trash. Cats eat, um, you know, they don't need to kill these rats in our alleyways. And I think we sort of tell ourselves that this story that, you know, to explain our close and mysterious relationship with this animal, that there has to be some kind of uh, reasonable explanation for the fact that we keep so many millions, hundreds of millions of cats around. And it's like, well, they help us out in all these different ways. I know they're killing rats in the alleyway, but actually cats and rats can just kind of hang out within a few feet of each other and gobble trash together because it's easier for both of them. Nobody has to get hurt. We've left enough refuse around for everybody to share. And, um, you know, that's the way that that animals survive. You know, it's just like you eat as much as you can, Get try not to get into too many fights, have as many babies as possible, and, you know, take over the world. So I want to take a moment and uh, let our listeners know that your book, The Lion in the Living Room, How House Cats Tamed Us and Took Over the World, is available at booksellers everywhere. So let's get to how this all began. How did we get into this mess? Yes. Um, You know, the story of animal domestication is 
absolutely fascinating. And um, it's very mysterious. And we are still sort of understanding how we came to forge relationships with a lot of the domesticated animals that we have around us. Um, but it seems like in most cases, uh, you know, when humans move from becoming hunter-gatherers to settled farmers or proto-farmers, we gradually started um, cultivating relationships with various animals and taking them under um, our wing for a variety of purposes, usually well, almost always we wanted something from them, like we wanted their meat or their milk or their labor or something like that, their fur. With house cats, though, the story is not quite as uh, cut and dry. It doesn't seem that uh, humans ever really tried to harness house cats. And it seems like they kind of crept into our settlements of our uh, of their own accord. And one of the uh, fun things that I did when reporting the book was I visited this lab at the Smith where um, this great uh, scientist, uh, Melinda Zader, was um, sorting through the bones and other remains from an ancient, I think, um, 11,000-year-old early human settlement uh, that had originally been in Turkey. They transported the the uh, debris to Washington, D.C., she, where she was looking through it and trying to find out what these people were eating and what they were doing, that kind of thing. One of the things that these scientists noticed was that um, in these early human settlements, you find these large spikes of what are known as mesopredators, so small carnivores um, like foxes and badgers and these little wildcats, which are the ancestor of our pets today. And basically, they think that, you know, what was going on was a lot like what was happening um, in the urban alleyways of modern Baltimore, that we were just creating these mounds of trash and these little animals were just coming in to eat the trash directly. And, you know, it could be that they were eating the mice that were around the trash to, quote unquote, help us. But I'm pretty sure at that time we hadn't really domesticated grains and didn't have grain stores or anything. So the mice wouldn't really be eating the, 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 the human resources in the same sort of ways. So there are these huge spikes of small predators that we um, also helped by killing off the, the big uh, carnivores in the ecosystem, like leopards, things that might have competed with the small predators. So we ha- there's a natural explosion of these little carnivores. And you can see the same thing in cities today, like uh, foxes in London or... Um, uh, raccoons in a lot of places, huge uh, explosions of of these little little guys. Um, but the interesting thing about house cats is that they don't occupy the same niche as foxes today in all cases. They can. They can live on the outskirts of our civilizations and make a living within our sphere. But they kind of went um, many, many little footsteps closer and um, partially underwent this very um, strange and inscrutable uh, physical process of domestication, whereby they underwent a series of small physical changes, particularly in the um, fear-related systems of their brains, which were reduced so that they could kind of stand to be in our stressful uh, cities and towns. Um, 
even more. So, to, so sort of gradually over the millennia, cats' brains got a little bit smaller, so they got a little bit less afraid of, afraid of us. Um, and that's sort of the key element of um, animal domestication in general. Animals have to not be afraid so they can eat and have babies in our settlements and thrive. Um, but the thing about cats is that they didn't go all the way. They don't exhibit this key suite of features that you see across domesticated animals if you think about them them. And scientists since Charles Darwin have been really puzzled by why domesticated animals have these kind of goofy looking traits like floppy ears and spots and kind of um, squashed in um, baby-like faces and curly tails. Uh, that suite of features is called the domestication syndrome. Um, and dogs exhibit all of the features of the syndrome. They're sort of the example because uh, the, the best example because they were were domesticated um, earlier than cats were, and so they've been under our care than longer than any other domesticated animal. But cats don't exhibit all of these features. They do have the mottled coloration, like the white splotches in some cases, but they don't have floppy ears. They don't have curly tails. Um, they're not. Uh, their faces are very much like the case the faces of the wild um, near eastern the near eastern wild cat and. People think that that might be because we never um, put them under um, artificial selection and that they've slowly, slowly been um, uh, exhibiting these uh, features of the domestication syndrome because they've been under a kind of self-directed natural selection whereby they're sort of gaining some of the traits of domestication without ever actually being domesticated for any clear purpose. And then, of course, there are certain breeds, like um, I think of Persian cats, that that do seem to have the smushed-in faces, and and maybe are more uh, a result of artificial selection. Is that is that true? Yeah, I mean, I think that that is something that um, that scientists are still kind of grappling with. You know, does a dog that looks a lot more like a, a baby, basically, that that has like a more squashed-in face and floppier ears? Is it necessarily tamer than another kind of dog, like a German Shepherd that looks more like a wolf? I think it's unclear whether within breeds, um, the, the resemblance, uh, translates into, domestication, um, because like another highly selected feline uh, kind, the Siamese has an opposite thing where it has like a really long wedge-shaped face, but that's also an animal that we spend a lot of time breeding. Basically, what it comes down to with cat breeds, and this is not something that I knew, um, is that a lot of them, well, first of all, almost all of them were made up in the last 50 years or so, unlike dog breeds, some of which date back to Roman times and Egyptian times and earlier. Um, they were, uh, they were recently invented and they're based on really superficial traits. Like they're, um, this widening of the Persian face that we see is almost like, an aesthetic thing rather than a purpose-driven thing. With dogs, at least nominally, a lot of breeding is based around certain tasks like, okay, this dog's going to be good at hunting for creatures that live in burrows, or this dog's going to have a great uh, nose system, a bloodhound, or this dog's going to be good at chasing wolves. Um, with cats, since cats don't really do anything 
purpose-driven selection is not really possible and sort of form can't follow function if there is no function. So basically these cats are just developed because they look weird and people in the cat breeding world, um, you know, sometimes they're, they're always looking for kind of like the next novelty trait. But uh, cat geneticists think that if we were to sort of just put all that behind us and forget about what looks cool or funny or new or interesting and just focus on the temperament of cats and this idea, this underlying idea that um, it was these bold, um, cool natured cats that were the ones who weaseled their way into our settlements and made themselves our pets. If we were to further enhance those traits and just breed them for temperament alone, then interesting new physiques might arise from that. And that's exactly what happened um, in this uh, famous Russian fox, ex- uh, fox farm experiment where um, these Russian scientists 50 or 60 years ago took um, a kind of fox that had never been uh, domesticated before and bred them not for thick fur or... Um, you know, length of tail or other things you might, other measurable things that you might think that people would breed foxes for, but only for their temperament alone. And um, it was really interesting. Within just a few generations, um, the foxes, uh, the friendly foxes began to transform and exhibit things like um, droopy ears and spotted fur, and they began to look a little bit more like like collie dogs. And we've never really put cats under the same kind of uh, test. And if we did, we might get more interesting breeds, or so some of these geneticists think. So one of the things I found really interesting is that cats don't meow to each other. They only meow to us, which sounds like it's a trait that has been bred in in some way or selected for in some way through domestication. Yeah, I mean, that that is something that's really interesting that um, in the wild, cats, even the ancestor of our um, of our pets, uh, the Near Eastern wild cat, cats are really solitary animals. They don't have a good communication repertoire because they're living by themselves in these places and they don't talk to anybody. Um, so even um, feral cats or stray cats, animals that are not living inside of our houses, meow less than the ha- cats that are inside of our houses. And it almost seems to be like something, um, you know, the, the, the subtitle of my book is, um, how house cats tamed us and took over the world. It does seem that cats somehow within our care, you know, they're, they're these indoor cats, they're trapped with us. They need a way to get the resources that they normally, that they're perfectly equipped to hunt on their own. They need to kind of figure out a way to manipulate the system. And so they change the way that they um, purr and the way they me- that they meow in a kind of conditioning process. They, um, they, they go about taming us, <laughs> which is is kind of kind of amazing to me um so they uh they actually kind of uh bend us to to their wills and i the the fact that you know you can have a cat that's that's stray and outdoors and doesn't meow very much and then you take its brother and put it inside and it learns how to meow in these complicated ways to get you to give it its food it's just fascinating yeah, and you know, taking that even one step further, of course, there's toxoplasmic gondi. Oh yeah. That. 
<laughs> so, you know, you're a cat owner yourself, so perhaps this is too close to home. But, you know, tell us about this parasite. Yes. So this is the uh, parasite that lives in um, in cats' uh, intestines and is distributed into the environment uh, via cat droppings. Um, and um, it's just a... Uh, an astounding um, organism. It's kind of the cat of the parasite world, which is really interesting. It's so widely distributed. Something like one in three people worldwide carry this um, parasite in cysts in their bodies. Um, and scientists are just kind of starting to figure out how it might affect us. Um, there's a lot of hype around um, the parasite and how it kind of uh, puppeteers us and practices um, a kind of uh, mind control thing because it does live inside of our brains. Um, but I don't think you even need to go that far into how it makes us feel to be amazed by how astoundingly pervasive and successful the parasite is. Um, I mean, it's been known for years to um, to blind uh, babies and cause abortions and all kinds of things. During the AIDS epidemic, um, it killed something like 10 or 20 percent of AIDS patients because these parasites, once they get entrenched into your body, if your immune system is compromised and it can't hold the parasite at bay, it will, you know, it will just um, run roughshod over your your brain, basically, and it can cause and death. Yeah, let me just interject and say that this is the drug that Martin Shkreli came under fire for increasing the cost of. You know, it was a drug to to essentially eliminate this infection. Um, exactly. You, you yeah. yeah. And I, I thought it was really interesting because I saw in those stories that not very many of them mentioned that they talked about the disease, uh, you know, uh, the parasite um, in as a disease is called toxo plasmosis. And uh, the stories talked about toxoplasmosis, but very few of them talked about cats. Um, <laughs> I think that it's, it's, it's sort of almost TMI for a lot of people. There have been these interesting pieces about, you know, can, can toxoplasma make you crazy? But I think, you know, it's just really hard for people to parse sometimes, like in these drug coverage stories, that it's the cats that we have hanging out with us all the time that are wreaking this havoc on people people's health. And it's, it's really kind of, um, it's an astounding situation. Um, and especially when you get into how widespread the parasite is in communities of wild animals, something like 80% of black bears in Pennsylvania carry the parasite. Lots of sea otters in California carry the parasite. And um, that is uh, almost certainly a result of the domestication uh, and uh, invasion of, of the house cat. You know, before uh, house cats were domesticated, even before we start, we started killing off all the top wild cats like mountain lions and um, and tigers and things like that. You know, these creatures, though they were um, global. Um, widespread globally were still pretty rare because they're apex predators sitting at the top of their ecosystems often alone. That is totally different than what we have in the modern world where you can have thousands of cats packed into a, a city mile and cats, you know, many cats wandering a neighborhood. It's these densities of felines that the world has never seen um, have these parasitic consequences that, you know, are really interesting and almost scary to think about. 
Yeah, I so I'm I'm still waiting for the the meme of like Martin Chakrelli like with a as Miss you know Doctor Evil with like you know <laughs> stroking a cat or or as like the cat lady surrounded by a thousand cats. <laughs> Coming, someone soon. do that. <laughs> Um, but, you know, so so the idea also comes from the fact that there are studies of uh, mice or rodents, for example, that when infected with the parasite become, you know, they no longer fear cats, which makes them easy prey. Um, yeah. Is that, is that where this is coming from? Yeah. So this idea that these cats, that cats can uh, control um, the minds and behaviors of other creatures. Personally, I think that that's just kind of like a manifestation of cat's power and the way that we're constantly trying to come up with a logical explanation for the kinds of power that these creatures have over us and the hold that they have on the world. Um, but yeah, there really are these, these famous studies where, um, rodents were exposed to cat uh, urine and the rodents who were infected with uh, toxoplasmosis seemed to lose their fear of cat urine, um, which um, makes it more likely that they would get eaten by a cat or so the story goes. And that's really, really good for the parasite because if the parasite can get eaten by a cat, especially a cat that's never before been infected by the parasite, the parasite can breed a billion copies of itself in the cat's stomach and then get um, excreted out and infect many other animals the food web and then those guys can lose their fear of cat urine and get eaten by a cat and then the cycle continues so the that is those are kind of the classic uh studies however there are scientists who think that it the story is not that simple there are a lot of it well some examples of um parasites controlling the behavior of um, other animals um, for reproductive ends, but that usually occurs in um, really simple organisms like ants. Um, there's no other parasite known to puppeteer uh, mouse behavior or ma- mammal behavior, let alone human behavior. Um, and some scientists think that um, maybe the parasite just makes... Um, it in, if it gets into your brain um, and it um, makes you just feel kind of under the weather, that just that um, change in in your the way that you feel or the way that a mouse feels can make it um, more likely that the animal that that the animal will get eaten by a cat. From the the parasite's perspective and the cat's perspective, by the way, it doesn't really matter whether or not this is some sort of uh, choreographed thing where you want where you suddenly you you are attracted to cats as they say or if it's just an accidental thing and you don't feel good and you're just more likely to get killed um in general it doesn't really matter as long as cats get the parasite and the parasite gets transmitted so one last unexpected result of reading your book is that uh i no longer think i can drink sauvignon blanc (laughs) yeah Yes, uh, that, so, the um, right. That's um, a really one of these just strange facts that came up in the course of my reporting, and there were so many of them. Um, is that um, you know this the case of New Zealand? It, New Zealand and cats are just really interesting in general. New Zealand is an island nation that doesn't have any native uh, mammal species, uh, let, except for a few um, kinds of bats. Um, but it also has one of the highest rates of cat ownership in the world. And of course, the cats 
eat the bats and all the birds and cause this havoc. And there's a campaign underway now to uh, basically outlaw cats from New Zealand and, you know, good luck with that. Um, but um, these cats also carry um, toxoplasmosis as they do all over the world. And um, that, uh, that has economic implications for New Zealand because um, one of the animals that uh, responds uh, most poorly to uh, taxoplasmosis are sheep, and the parasite causes uh, barrenness in, in sheep and uh, lamb abortions and has economic consequences for these sheep farmers who make up a big part of New Zealand's economy. But kind of the uh, ironic twist is that New Zealand is known for these, um, these, uh, Sauvignon Blancs and, um, especially ones that smell, um, in, uh, your sommelier's notes, you might say a little bit like cat pee. And in fact, one of the, um, <laughs> New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs that I had myself tasted and enjoyed before reporting on this book was called Cat's Pee on a Gooseberry Bush. And it was just kind of one of these questions, even though you, it's sort of tempting to, to dismiss this idea that people with toxoplasmosis are attracted to the smell of cat urine as, as, as you know as total bunk you know here's this island nation with a large cat population and high toxoplasmosis rates that has as one of its national products this uh, Sauvignon Blanc that distinctively smells like cat pee it's just very odd well I guess I'll have to get over my aversion to California Chardonnays (laughs) (laughs) very fast so on that note I want to thank you for being on Inquiring Minds Abigail Tucker thank you so much for having me So, cats. Now, uh, so, <laughs> if you can see the look on my face, it's basically one of just confusion. Now I feel very much not in control uh, around these cats. No, but this idea of, like, it brought up a question of, like, who domesticated who? Who actually, uh, you know, encouraged this relationship? Because I-, I thought the most fascinating part, I mean, besides the internet part, which is always most fun, is this idea that, Every other animal we've domesticated has been done for a tangible benefit for humans in some way, whether working in the field or whatnot. We have no such thing for cats. Yeah. I mean, you know, the only thing that I could say is that I do feel like we had a mouse problem after our cat died, but we didn't have one before, (laughs) you know, is that, but uh, yeah, I don't know. And this idea that if they somehow manage to domesticate us or cultivate us for their domestication and they've still developed some of those traits like the cuteness traits the spots that we associate with other animals that are domesticated that make them appear more cute to us i think that's utterly fascinating and reveals this symbiosis that we have that's much larger than the idea of how of how we normally evolve yeah and i never thought there was such a big difference between dog breeding and cat breeding you know that this idea that um artificial selection is a relatively new phenomenon amongst our domesticated cats um compared with our dogs you know that they that we've been we've been breeding dogs for specific purposes for hundreds of years but for cats it's a relatively recent thing um, and it kind of you know explains why so many cats do look the same. There's it doesn't seem to be as big a variability as there are in dogs. But I also liked her kind of idea of you know what's going to happen if we actually do start artificially selecting for certain traits in cats, like you know friendliness. 
<laughs> what, what, no what, such thing. What other traits are going to, you know, come along with the friendliness? Well, let me ask you this. Like, so you started the show by saying that you always wanted a cat, but you were allergic. Let's say we could select out your allergy. Do you still want a cat knowing what you know now that they are a little bit of a menace in some ways and their relationship with us might be more one-sided? Well, I'm just afraid of having a pet of any kind because, you know, I have trouble keeping my son alive <laughs> given how much I travel and, you know, the, the sort of my work schedule. Uh, so, you know, that that's that's the big... But maybe after when I retire you know, in a in hundred years or so, um, I'll uh, what surround a myself with cats. <laughs> so it sounds like you were not convinced to get a cat by this discussion. Uh, Maybe that's our tangible benefit, that we are convincing you that cats are a menace. I'm not going to get a cat. I mean, if anything, I would get one from the SPCA. But, you know, even still, it's just with so many cats around, it just seems like, do we really need another cat? I don't know. <laughs> I have a feeling I'm going to get a cat soon after this conversation. I'm going to go home and there'll be a cat waiting for me, ready to react to my comments this week. Well, if you get one, you better just get two. What? <laughs> so they can be friends. <laughs> so that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds on Internet Cats. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Nick Cadillac, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, pictures of your cat or other memes, uh, anything you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Eichenhaus Cheeseburger, Adam Isaac, in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rianjian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. And once again, this week's episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses at a fraction of the price. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly to you. To get $50 toward any one of their obsessively engineered mattresses, visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.